Our public reading of scripture today will be from the book of Luke, first, which you'll find in your pew Bibles on page 1000, that's easy to remember. And we're also reading a little from the book of Galatians, sorry, from Ephesians, so you might want to stick your finger in 1136 in the pew Bibles at least, that'll be Ephesians chapter 5, but we'll start with Luke chapter 7. When Jesus, Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And now if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1136, just the first two verses. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we just pray that your inspiration, your Holy Spirit will be with Pastor Mark as he brings the message that you've given to him for us for today. Father, may our hearts be open and receptive to hear the words that, that you've prepared for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ron. I would like to ask that you keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 7. We'll return to that passage in just a bit. 
But in preparation for looking at the text, I'd like for us to continue the conversation that we began last Sunday about God's active love through Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Or as my title puts it, God's love in action through Christ Jesus. That hearing about it, and last week was about hearing the gospel, seeing it, even experiencing God's act of love through Christ Jesus, we might believe and be saved. Or as John 3.16 put it from last week, not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, last Sunday, we were quite a long way into getting the very large context within which God's love in Christ Jesus is manifested in us and among us and through us. And we, we saw that our part is just simply a small part of a vast vision and much larger picture in Christ Jesus. Our creator God envelops us into his great love for the world, the cosmos, indeed the whole of his creation. So the immediate context of our need is as part of the whole world's need for the active intervening love of God in Christ Jesus to rescue, to restore, to reconcile, and yes, to save. Without question, this truth is best and most clearly set out in what is also the most familiar verse in the whole Bible, and that is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as we noted last Sunday, John 3.16 is likely the most familiar and beloved verse because of this profound clarity, of this very clear and concise message of salvation through Jesus Christ sent from God. As some have observed, it contains within it the whole gospel in 25 words or less. And in fact, in the Greek New Testament, it's exactly 25 words. But the following verse, John 3:17, though much less familiar to us, is every bit as important and equally profound as Jesus explains his meaning of the previous verse, John 3:16. For God did not send his son into the world, again, the same term here, the cosmos, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So from these verses, we can clearly see that whatever the evidence put forward for God's love, whatever the expressions of God's love, whatever the doctrine of God's love, the Bible sets the proper context for our understanding and our knowing his love is his vast love for the world, the cosmos, meaning the whole of his creation. And it's huge, not just the creation, but God's love for it. Yet the Bible also makes clear that God in Christ Jesus holds and has always held a unique place in his, restless, er, his relentless heart for human beings in general, 
And in particular, he's always asserted an extreme, even eternal commitment of his infinite love for his people. First, Israel, and later until now, the church. In particular, God loves you, God loves me, God loves us. Like a loving father, like a courageous warrior, like an unrequited lover, God in Christ Jesus just keeps coming for us. He keeps pursuing us. And he makes clear both in his word and by his spirit that he will have us for his own at all costs to himself. But still, it's not enough for us to know that God's love us. We must also feel it. We can even think of feeling and knowing as two sides of the single God loves us coin. And this needing to feel something properly directed and properly expressed is good, right, and true because God created us to feel, to desire, and to need him. In fact, we don't know and feel God, rather, if we don't know and feel God's love for us, our faith, our worship, our fellowship, our ministry, our church, and yes, our lives tend to feel sterile, clinical, a little cool, maybe even cold. This is why we need the Holy Spirit's presence. We must have the Holy Spirit's presence. He is the very presence of Jesus Christ in us. He is the love of God in Christ Jesus among us. And while the Holy Spirit isn't the primary emphasis of this sermon, he is in it everywhere. Nothing of God's word can be understood and nothing of God's love can be known or felt apart from the Holy Spirit. So let's keep him in mind as we continue these weeks. And as I noted earlier then in, in August, we will focus on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically among his people. But before we get too impressed with ourselves because God's relentless heart and his infinite love won't let us go, we need to keep two things in mind. Firstly, he loves us uniquely, infinitely, and eternally because of who he is, not because of who we are. God is love. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 put it this way, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4 and verse 19 puts it even more succinctly, we love because he first loved us. There is the very correct biblical sense and the very correct Christian sense that God loves us and did everything he could in Christ Jesus to redeem us. That's absolutely true. And he did so because he created us uniquely, 
us human beings, to bear his very own image and likeness on the earth and to represent him on the earth. We are unique in this way. What we must not lose sight of, though, especially if we tend to major on God's love, mercy, and compassion, as most Christian churches and Christians do today, but we simultaneously minor in God's truth, holiness, and righteousness, as most Christians and most Christian churches do today, is that we are no longer doing what God created us to do. What I mean is, since our fall into sin and after death's entry into the world, we've not been reflecting God's image or likeness as we ought, as we've been created to do. We've not been representing him on the earth as we ought, as we have been created to do. So at the very least, God's image and likeness in us is veiled. There are those who believe and teach that God's image and likeness in fallen human beings has been marred or even destroyed. But I think it's better to think of it as veiled or hidden, which is what the Spirit writes about through Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16, 17, and 18. Listen to this, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, those of you who are... Um, more astute at what the Bible teaches will immediately think, wait a minute, the veil that is removed in Christ there in verse 16 is from verses 7 through 15, and that's the veil that is over the eyes and hearts of the Jews as they read Moses, the law, and cannot see that it, it, it refers to Christ and points them to Christ. And that, that, that veil of unbelief, and that's what the veil, if we were going to name the veil, the veil would be unbelief. And it's only removed in Christ. And, and that's absolutely true. That's exactly what he's talking about. But I want you to hear what comes after that. And I want you to hear first verses 4, 5, and 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And then he goes on and talks about the veil over the hearts and minds of the Jews as they read the law and they cannot understand that it points them to Christ. That's exactly correct. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, so verse, you just heard a reference to the Spirit, but the, the Spirit gives life, the letter kills, and, and he has given us, made us a, a sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not to the uh, letter, but of the Spirit. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, I'm suggesting here, in Christ by the Spirit. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with what kind of faces, do you remember? We all, not, not just Jews, we all with unveiled faces. That veil called unbelief is removed in Christ for us all. Beholding, or, or actually the word there is reflecting the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What is that image? That image is of God in Christ Jesus from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is 
the Spirit. So God loves us uniquely, infinitely, and eternally because of who he is, and, and because of his great love, he is not satisfied merely to save us from his own wrath and death and hell. He's committed to restoring his image, likeness, and purpose in us, removing the veil of unbelief, allowing the Holy Spirit to restore what has been lost, to reconcile us to God in Christ. But secondly, if we, hum if we human beings, to the extent that we have free agency, insist on going our own way, refusing his gracious and loving offer of eternal life in Christ Jesus, God's sovereign righteousness and justice require that he let us go, and he will. Proverbs 14, 12 puts it this way, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. That God's love is greater than our sin. This is the gospel. And he is committed to doing, and he has done far more than our sins deserve. This is the gospel. And it's very important for us to keep our biblical bearings and our biblical balance, especially with something as expansive, as deep, as wide, and as high as God's love in Christ Jesus. And as we do, let's hear this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are slaughtered, being, being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's Psalm 44, 22. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Romans 8 verses 35 to 39. Turning now to our text, which is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. You're likely to have noticed already that I've slightly altered the original question, the controlling question as I've been putting it from last week, when it was, how do I know God loves me? To this week, how, do I, how can I feel God loving me? Knowing and feeling being the two sides of the same God's love coin, as I note, noted before. And we'll attempt to answer both questions from the biblical Christian point of view this morning and the next two Sundays. But I wanted to introduce the second closely related question because it goes a long way to helping us to know that God loves us. We could even say that knowing and feeling are mutually affirming. How do we know? Well, one of the ways we know is that we can feel. But feeling also comes with it an aspect of faith or belief or knowing that God loves us as well. And if we can get some personal perceptual sense that God loves us, in other words, if we can feel him loving us in some way, we might begin to understand and know that God loves us beyond our need or our ability to feel his love during the dry times. In other words, when we don't or we can't feel him loving us, even when we desperately need to. So there in your 
bulletin in your upper left-hand corner, you have our central truth of the message, and I read it a little bit ago. I just want to read it one more time. God's love in Christ Jesus manifests, and what manifests means is realized, is displayed, is demonstrated, is made real. It, 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 it manifests. God's love in Christ Jesus manifests in, among, and through the lives of believing Christians and the ministries of believing Christian churches. And one of the ways we can begin to feel God loving us is seeing and hearing and even experiencing him loving others, and so we find tangible hope of the same for ourselves. And what we have here in verses 1 through 17 of Luke 7 are two vignettes or, or two scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus for which we can glean a few vital truths concerning how we might begin to feel for ourselves as individuals, as families, as a congregation, God in Christ Jesus loving us. So as we look at and hear the first eight verses of Luke 7, again, let's, let's think about it in this way. This, you can call this point, major point of truth number one, feeling God loving us begins with believing that God loves us. Feeling God loving us begins with believing that God loves us. This is where last week's message from John 3:16 and following on God in Christ Jesus' infinite, sacrificial, and eternal love for the world, the cosmos, including us, connects with today's. Last week's sermon was the big picture truth. God loves the world, his whole creation, and us human beings as an integral part of his creation. This week's sermon hones in on God in Christ Jesus' unique and very personal love for human beings in particular. Last week, we looked through a telescope up at the skies, the cosmos. This week, we look through binoculars, at each other perhaps even. And as we move to the text, there's one more distinction to make. The non-human part of God's creation is either inanimate objects, stars, galaxies, planets, rocks, water, and dirt, or non-sentient creatures, meaning they lack conscience, they lack self-awareness, and the ability to believe or have faith. Dogs, cats, goldfish, lions, bears, and yes, even bearded dragons. But for us human beings, uniquely created in the likeness and image of God to represent him on the earth, who should also be aware of ourselves, each other, and our created God, that we are created, we are not creators. Hebrews 11.6, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. And Romans 14.23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now look with me at Luke 7, verses 1 through 8. Speaking of Jesus, here at the beginning... After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. A centurion is a Roman uh, leader, commander. Uh, centurion refers to the common English word century, a hundred. So generally speaking, this, this commander was in charge of a hundred people, a hundred soldiers. Um, 
and they were dis displayed throughout the what we would call the Holy Land uh, as Rome occupied uh, the Holy Land at that time, at the time of Jesus. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. This would be a very unusual thing. First of all, for a centurion to elicit the help of a Jewish rabbi, It would be very unusual for a Jewish rabbi to render aid to a Roman centurion. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you, speaking of the centurion, to do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So likely a believing Roman centurion. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So we see here, I'm, I'm saying that we can draw from this text that feeling God loving us begins with believing that he does. Clearly, clearly the centurion had this understanding or belief that despite all of his experience and education and training, his servant whom he loved, whom he treasured, it says, could be helped by this one man that he had heard about. And he sends for him. He sends for Jesus. And feeling God loving us begins with believing that he does, in fact, love us. We reach out to him. We ask him to respond to us. And Jesus confirms this pivotal understanding for us in his response. And I'm putting it under heading number two. You can call this major truth number two. Jesus responds to our needs as we ask in faith, believing that he hears us. Now, we have to be careful here, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, but we have to be careful not to become result-oriented. It must be good enough knowing that he hears us, believing that he hears us, and so we ask in faith for him to respond to our needs. It's very important that we don't get carried away here. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel message, either in the text or this sermon. It is, however, a Jesus can and Jesus does and Jesus will respond to our needs message. He will and he does. But how do we know that God in Christ Jesus responds to our prayers, to our requests, and especially to our, inter our intercessions for others, offered to him in faith, believing that he hears us? We know because that's what we see throughout the Gospels, including here and throughout the rest of the New Testament. And the thing we often struggle with is the substance of his response. Too often we insist he respond in the way we expect or feel that we need. Otherwise, it doesn't count. We're not satisfied. We don't acknowledge it. We don't even see it, perhaps. 
But the substance of his response is his to determine, not ours. And this is where believing that he loves us becomes the beginning of feeling it. In this case, in Luke chapter 7, because of the remarkable faith of the centurion, not for himself, mind you, but on behalf of his dear servant, Jesus responds as the centurion asked, believing Jesus would hear him and respond in a way that would reflect Jesus' authority and power. And interestingly, Matthew wraps up his version of this story in chapter 8, verse 13 of Matthew's gospel. And, the centurion, Jesus, and to the centurion, the Jesus, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Here in our text, verses 9 and 10, Jesus doesn't proclaim a healing. He just remarks about the the faith of the centurion. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus responds to our needs as we ask in faith, believing that he hears us. There's a third thing I'd like for us to see from this text. It actually occurs in the next little vignette. Um, Your heading in your Bible might say, like mine, Jesus raises a widow's son. It's a similar event in the sense that It's an attesting miracle, and we'll talk about that in just a second, what that means. But let's consider it as as number three, point number three. God's love in Christ Jesus is often expressed and must be received as mercy, care, and comfort. God's love in Christ Jesus is often expressed and must be received as mercy, care, and comfort. Once again, we must be careful here. Jesus is about to do something truly miraculous. Not that his healing, the centurion's son, wasn't miraculous, but this is the next level of miracle altogether, I think we can agree, bringing someone back from physical death to physical life. Here's what we have to ask, and we would all, should, should always ask it, both when we read the Gospels, where the point is to emphasize the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and when we ask something of him today. Here's the question. What's the point? What's the point? Every person except for Jesus, who was raised again, raised from physical death died. Every person, whoever was healed in the Bible, later died. So there has to be some overarching, eternal truth here that we, we ought not to miss. So what is the point? Well, the biblical Christian answer is to glorify God to exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and today to submit ourselves to the good, right, and true ministry of the Holy Spirit, who we just read in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, is the Lord. Here in the Gospels, 
we have attesting miracles. This means that these are miracles that attest to the identity and work of God's anointing, the Messiah, the Christ. We should not expect the same in our day, and we should not be disappointed when he doesn't do it. I'm not at all saying that Jesus Christ won't or doesn't heal today. I believe that he does. I'm not even saying that Jesus Christ won't or doesn't bring someone back from the dead today. He certainly could if he willed to. I am saying that it's not normal. Regardless of how much faith we exert into the thing we're believing for, that's why it's called a miracle. It's unusual. It doesn't happen very often. And I'm very sorry to have to tell you that. A couple of years ago, I was contacted by a dear friend of ours who was part of our church in Iowa. She was troubled by something that was going on in the Christian community there in Knoxville, and she wanted to get my sense of it. It seems that a very successful church in the community, which had been started following the Willow Creek model of church planting during the time we were there in the late 1990s and early 2000s, it had at some point taken up and had begun teaching an extreme version of the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel that said Jesus will do anything if we have the faith. Anything we ask for, Jesus will do. Unfortunately, one of the young couples in the congregation had a baby, and that baby died. And I don't know the lengths of time or any of those details, but encouraged by their pastors and other leaders of that church, this couple refused to accept the finality of death in this fallen order, and they began to believe their baby had died in order to be raised. I, I mean there and then. I, I don't mean in the, trip, in the um, Perugia or the second coming of Christ or the rapture or anything like that. I mean like tomorrow or the next day or next week. I need not go into any further detail for you to get the point and for us to understand the wreckage the fallout, the even greater disappointment that befell that young couple and that church when that baby did not come back to life. Now with that morbid caution, let's look briefly at verses 11, 12, and 13. Soon afterward, that is soon after Jesus had this encounter with the centurion and the healing of his servant, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord, Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. So let's take care to understand and know and feel even that God's love in Christ Jesus is often expressed and it must be received as mercy, care, and comfort, as it was here for Jesus and the widow. 
Finally, this morning, number four, number last, the purpose of God's work in the world today, since Jesus Christ came and until Jesus Christ returns, is to glorify God, to testify to his goodness, and draw all people to himself. One more time, the purpose of God's work in the world today, since Jesus Christ came and until Jesus Christ returns, is to glorify God, testify to his goodness, and draw all people to himself. We need only to read the text to get this point. Look with me from verse 14. Then he came up and touched the, 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 the buyer or the casket, as the NIV said, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Watch the next two verses, 16 and 17. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The purpose of God's work in the world today, as it was here, since Jesus Christ came and until Jesus Christ returns, is to glorify God, testify to his goodness, and draw all people to himself, and he will do it. But what does this work of God in the world today look like? How do we glorify God, testify to his goodness, and join him as he draws all people to himself until Jesus Christ returns? I believe it happens mostly, if not exclusively, in, among, and through his people through us, through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. We are his base of operations in the world. And I also believe the Spirit has revealed to us what this should, should and must look like. One of the pictures comes through Paul the Apostle to the local church at Ephesus. Ron read it, just two verses, verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. My title has been Believing God's Love in Action Through Jesus Christ and my central truth has been God's love in Christ Jesus manifests in, among, and through the lives of believing Christians and the ministries of believing Christian churches. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we process this, this, this message, this sermon, as we process this, this text, I would ask that you would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit. that the Spirit would open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. To the life in Christ. And to the hope that we have in him. Let us know also that you love us. Let us know that you love us. 
let us feel that you love us. You, you give us the capacity for wanting, for needing, for desiring, for feeling. But help us to understand that those capacities must be appropriated properly, that you must be our first love. You've given us those capacities to know our dependence on you, our relation to you, our purpose is in you. And teach us how to live in this world in our time and place until you come. Help us to hear, help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted you to hear one of my favorite passages in the scriptures. How many times have you heard that? Um, this particular one is Romans chapter 5, not chapter 8, I might note, but Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Here's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want to know how, how you can know that God loves you? Verse 8 is a pretty good place to hang out for a while. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Lord, thank you for this word, this hopeful word, this word of truth and life. May we leave this place encouraged and looking forward to what you have in store for us, both in this life and in the next. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next time.